Welcome to the Moosroom, everybody. The OG3 is here, which is great. Uh, again, it's it's getting pretty rare for us all three to be together. And I feel like our consistency has improved a little bit. It, it's getting there. It's getting there. But we are. It's not like the summer. No, no. But we are we are picking up uh, when it comes to speaking engagements and all these other things going on. So be prepared. There's going to be some. Uh, solo episodes or just the two of us at times it's it's going to happen pretty quickly here as we move on but for today we're all together which is great before we started recording well it's on tape but before we started the episode we did our due diligence and we talked taylor swift and the super bowl and all that stuff so that's out of the way we don't have to put that on tape anymore to emily's disappointment but we're done with that conversation it's okay we can still save that audio that we had for me. Exactly. I'll send it to you later. <laughs> but we're done with that one. We're talking cows, which is what we do on this podcast. And this is sparked by a listener question and and really dialing it down to the, the heart of the discussion. The question is, do we have a reliable genetic test for fertility, health and longevity in a cattle system, whether that's dairy or beef? So before I give my take on it, We'll kick it to our resident geneticist who knows all things and is tenured. Bradley, what's your take? Well, that's a it's a quite the loaded question. It sort of depends on what you mean by reliable test. You know, if you we we think about it from health and fertility. So we know that we, you know, we could be thinking about genomics, so genomic testing. Uh an animal, whether it's beef or dairy, how reliable is that uh, test at predicting health, uh, fertility outcomes of animals? It's actually quite low. You know, the the heritability of health and fertility are really low. So trying to get an accurate prediction of health and fertility of dairy animals or beef animals is probably pretty low. I think that does a genomic prediction improve over the parent average? Probably a little bit, but reliable. I'm not sure that, you know, how, how reliable is it? And we can talk about whether what's reliability and what's accuracy, but I don't want to stump all the people here with all that. But, you know, so I've genomic tested a lot of animals here in Morris and the fertility numbers sometimes don't match up with what I would expect the genomic test to do. So there's this difference between genetics and, uh, you know, genotypes and a phenotype of an animal. Sometimes I think we get confused with genotypes, uh, phenotypes by, you know, if we talk about fertility, you know, we can give lots of, uh, you know, hormone programs, sync programs, and improve the fertility of an animal, even though the genetic uh, reliability might be low. So it looks like we're improving it, but maybe management is improving it more than genetics are. That's my take. I don't know if they're as reliable as what we would expect them to be. So the short answer is no. (laughs) That's what I'm hearing. That was a long-winded answer, but sure. (laughs) I, I, th- I think that's the right answer. When we talk genetic test, you know, yeah, there isn't 
a test that's going to tell you those things. There's not going to be something that's, I mean, all those things are considered low heritability compared to things that we know are high heritability, like marbling and carcass characteristics and those kind of things. My argument is that we do have a genetic test for these things. If we talk fertility, health, and longevity, beef, dairy, doesn't matter. That That's really just success, right? If, 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 what else do you want to measure a cow by? You know, if she's around, she gets pregnant and she stays healthy. She has to be productive or else she wouldn't be there. So, I mean, that's success. So for me, my take on this is that we do have a genetic test and it is highly heritable. And the genetic test is whether or not that dam stays in your herd. I don't know if that's the right take, the wrong take. We'll ask Brad. But for me, especially if we think, let's let's take beef, for example, first. If you've got a cow that's been around eight, nine years, she calves in the first 21 days every year. She gets pregnant right away. She's healthy. She is showing you that her genetics work in your system. So for me, that's a reliable test. I know her genetics work in my system. We've tested her for nine years and it's gone beautiful. I think it's the same on the dairy side. And last night, I got a chance to talk to Dr. Lynn Egan down in Southeast Minnesota and he told me a really cool story. So pretty common practice, small dairies, you name cows by letters in the alphabet. So especially if you have a small herd, this herd that he told me about had actually exactly 26 stanchions in their barn when he worked with them a long time ago. That producer just named everyone by letters in the alphabet. Everyone got one letter. And then their daughters were also named by that letter. So if we had Abigail as the mom, then that daughter would be Anna, whatever you want to do it, A and A, B and B, C and C. So Lynn said that he saw that, that, that herd start and everyone had a letter of the alphabet. And then he also saw that herd wrap up 20, 30 years later. And guess how many letters were left? Four. Oh, I was going to guess 10. Whoa. There's only four letters left. So for that system specifically, which it's not cookie cutter across the industry, there's only four letters left because those are the cows that proved to be successful and those genetics worked in that system. So for me, my answer roundabout maybe not a geneticist answer is that we do have a reliable test. It's the cows that work in your system. And in that situation, if you've taken those same cows and moved them a mile down the road to someone else's barn with different feed, different management style, different people involved, could have been completely different letters that were left at the end of that game. So I thought that that was a really cool story that illustrated that I think we do have a reliable test and it's success of mom in your system. And that's who you should be selecting for because she's already proven that she works in your system. All right, Brad, tear it down. It's like you just wanted to debate me today, didn't you? I think that's... <laughs> Let me go get my popcorn. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think you're, you are correct. I think you are, how, how should I say it? You're blurring the lines between phenotype and genotype. And 
I think you are talking about phenotypes only because you see the herd, the cows that work in a herd. So you're just seeing what the phenotypes are. And I get it. I've heard that many times and I do it here when I got a, you know, 89 point cow and I breed her to this higher type bull, I'm probably going to get a, a probably a little bit nice, nicer type bull. So that's phenotype. So we can know that there is differences in phenotype. Genetically, I think that maybe there is something about those cows that work in that environment genetically, and that would be called genotype by environment interaction. So that's what a lot of people think about. You know, if you have, you know, these cows work well in this herd, but then you take them to another herd and they don't work, that's genotype by environment interaction. So the combination of genes in certain animals work well in one herd that might not work well in other herds. You know, I sort of face this probably every day. And, you know, I work with a lot of grazing producers and early on in my career, you know, there was a lot of people that said, you know, we, we use New Zealand genetics, you know, nothing against the New Zealand genetics uh, for grazing herds because they're built for more grazing animals, you know, grazing, we eat more grass. However, the New Zealand genetics sometimes don't do well in some grazing herds up here in the upper Midwest because our environment is different. You know, in New Zealand, they're grazing all the time, 365 days a year. In the upper Midwest here, we have something called winter. Those cows need TMR. Uh, they're not grazing 365 days of the year, so they don't really express their genotype like they maybe would in New Zealand. So I think there's, I I agree with your points, but I there's this difference, you know, genotype by env environment interaction is is everything. It's everything. So Bradley, when you say that, I mean it. To me, it sounds like we're kind of wading into the waters of epigenetics. Is that really? what you're kind of getting at here, you know, this concept that behaviors or environment can actually cause, you know, changes in the genes of the animal. Is that what you're getting at here? Or epigenetics is something totally different and I'm dragging us into the weeds. Which is it? Animals express their genetics differently in some environmental conditions. So if, if I use an example, I could use our, our herd here in Morris. So we have top net merit bulls that are, you know, I select for high fat, uh, high protein, but you do not get the production level here in our herd that, you know, if I take these cows and put them in, say, the St. Paul uh, University herd where they're fed TMR all the time. In, in our conventional herd here, we're fed TMR all the time, but the management is different there. Production would be a lot different than what it would be for, for our cows. Now you could talk about production. Now we can talk about fertility would be different. You know, the Holsteins out here uh, do much better for fertility. You know, is there a difference between production and fertility? Sure. But, and you put those in animals in a different environment, maybe they don't express their fertility genes differently. So I think it depends on herds, herd environments. There's yeah, epigenetics, maternal effects, how, what's expressed from the, the, the dam when they're young, I think there's just a lot of factors and that's probably related to, cause some people are like, oh, well, these bulls are the great in this herd, but they don't do well in this herd. And that's, that's genotype by environment interaction and expressing genes differently 
across different environments. Hmm. I, I know I'm blurring the lines, and I'm and I, I wanted to get Bradley fired up on purpose, and that's uh, that's part of this game. It's working exactly. <laughs> the blurring of the lines, I think, is something that needs to happen when you're making a selection. You can't use all or one or the other, right? You have to figure out how to blur those lines for your system, and this, you know, largely gets into the debate of when we can get down a rabbit hole here of, of proven versus new genetics, right? Like when we're talking about what's going on for me, I'm always going to err on the proven side. Um, and I'm not chasing these brand new curve bending bulls to try to figure out what's going on. Right. Like I, I want proven genetics that I know have already worked in my system where I can help that animal express their full potential through management. And I'm not chasing all the newest, greatest things. Now, some people do, and I don't know Bradley's take on that, but I'm I'm always going to err on the proven side of things and kind of in that debate of what, what do I do? Well, I think that we're at a point where even if I stay on the, the leading edge of the proven side of things, I'm going to still be making big genetic advancements in my herd without having to take the risk on these bulls that we not oh, we don't have enough data on yet to tell me what they're going to do. Is that fair, Brad? I agree. Yeah, I agree. It's so different and every herd is different. And although, you know, when we do sort of genetic evaluations, whether it's for dairy or whether it's for beef, you know, we are adjusting for or trying to adjust for these environmental effects. It might not always be perfect, but we're trying to adjust it. So when you get EPDs or PTAs for bulls or cows or heifers in your herd, that should be across all of the environments and you know supposedly an animal that's the top merit bull should perform in all herds pretty much the same and they they tend to it just sometimes you have these little nuances that maybe the top net merit bull is the worst in your herd and the the low net merit bull the cheap bull uh, seems to do just as well well that's all related to environment and how the an animal may express their genetics based on that environmental conditions. Joe, you said something, you know, early on when you were telling the story about the vet with, I'll call them the alphabet cows, right? You know, those four letters that survived. And, and you know, Brad, you had also made comments of like why you select certain bulls, kind of knowing what your management system is and how those can fit in. So like, to me, I'm just really thinking about how, you know, we're talking on these testings and high level things, but it's really about customizing your cows for your system, right? And it's just like you said, Brad, like a bull might do really, really well, you know, with offspring in one system, but in another, maybe not so much. We aren't finding a hard, good answer on like, this is the way to do it. This is the golden ticket. This is the silver bullet, you know, because it's custom. You know, we talk each farm is different management and each farm is going to have different cows. They can use the exact same genetics. And right, like I can guarantee those cows going to different farms, they're going to have different lives. Right. And what they end up doing, how productive they are, that's all going to be influenced by that. So, again, I'm kind of thinking this is too like we can use all the research and what is working for our neighbors and other people. But we also, again, need to keep in mind, like we're customizing these cows to fit our individual system. Like for some people, that's the goal, right? So 
just curious what your thoughts are on on that type of concept and how you know these other genetic and and genotype and phenotype and epigenetics how that you know how we can consider those in this type of concept well i don't know let's hear from the veterinarian what what does he think i stumped bradley everybody note <laughs> i don't think so i think he wants me to give him ammunition to argue with me more exactly exactly you started a debate today so we're going we, we are going to debate okay this. so so here's what i see uh, in regard to that, I, I think there are some basic management principles that need to be accounted for in every system, but how that happens, the way that you go about it, farmers are ingenious on figuring out how to get things done in their own way and making it work for their system. But there's a limit to what you can do with that side of things. You can provide the correct bunk space, water space, keep animals clean and dry, but eventually you get to a limit where it doesn't make sense to change your system more to fit the cows. And you have to figure out how to help your cows and grow them to fit your system. Because it's going to be different for everybody, but you have to find that, like you were talking about, Emily, you got to make the cows fit the system. And what I get most frustrated about is when people are trying to go down that road and they're frustrated by a lack of change, but they're not applying any selective pressure. Nothing's going to change unless you provide that selective pressure to, to make those cows fit your system. On the, on the beef side, for example, if you continue to, for whatever reason, allow open cows to stick around to the next breeding season to give them another chance to get pregnant, all you're doing is perpetuating an animal that doesn't work in your system. If you, and then especially if you keep daughters out of them, you're just making the whole problem worse. If you don't put that selective pressure on there and say, nope, we have a hard cutoff at 60 days, and if you don't fall in that window, you're gone, there's no pressure for improvement. So you have to create that pressure to allow that change to happen and, and make those cows fit your system. That's what I get most frustrated about is that people are angry about a lack of change, but they haven't applied any selective pressure. That's where I'll quit. We'll see what Brad has to say. Genetics works. You know, so genetics works. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a little bit within the last few weeks because we've been working on a study in our uh, St. Paul campus dairy at, at the university on looking at sort of energy balance, uh, body maintenance, uh, methane emissions of contemporary Holstein cows versus 1964 Holstein cows. And People might know we have this old genetic herd at the University of Minnesota. It's basically frozen in time, and um, there's been no selection pressure on uh, really anything for a long time. Because you know, Joe, you talk about selection and and trying to do that. So we know that this herd was for a long time was at our Southern Research Center. Then they came out here to Morris. They were here 12 years and now they've been in St. Paul. And I will tell you, the production level does not change when you put them in different environments. Uh, and, and the fertility does not change. You know, we, we, I could pretty much wave a straw of semen behind them and they become pregnant, which, which kind of shows you genetics works because fertility was much better back in the 50s and 60s. Granted, we had a lot less production, but you can see across time how we've selected for 
milk production level, we've selected for type, we've selected for better disposition in our cows through genetics, and that's all worked. And people have done that by selecting, you know, phenotypes and genotypes in 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 their herds. You know, for most of this selection across the last 40 years or since that herd started was basically by phenotypic selection, you know, looking at production level, looking at fertility, looking at health. So I think it does work. Selection works and trying to select the, the best animals in your herd, whether it's genetically or phenotypically, I think it all plays part in uh, improvement of breeds, improvement of cows uh, within a person's herd and across the country. Is that a vague answer enough for you? It's pretty vague, but it, I think it, it, the, the example of the 64 cows is huge. I mean, that, that makes, uh, it very, very apparent that, uh, good or bad, we can create genetic change, uh, quickly. Um, and I think that, I mean, especially when we get into these situations where we have a pretty high turnover rate, replacement rate before dairy, um, it doesn't take 50 years to make big strides or big changes in genetics. You, it happens fairly quickly. So in a 10 year span, you can, you can make massive changes to the genetics of your herd. Uh, and so you just have to be careful because that, and re, keep in mind, I'm saying change. I'm not saying improvement. Like, so you can, you can go either way with this, uh, depending on how you work it. Um, and that's how we got in trouble on the dairy side, right? We emphasize production so much and we forgot about fertility for so long. And now we have management tools that have brought it back up, but also genetic selection that has brought fertility back. We got to be careful because it's genetic change, not necessarily always improvement. So far, I think we're done debating, right, Brad? Is there any more arguments? Well, well I'm sure we can debate. We could probably debate all That's day true. long about That's this. You, you know, genetics are my passion, and uh, sometimes I geneticists love to debate with each other, and uh, we. We never come to an agreement. Well, it's good. <laughs> I think it's really good to have uh, Bradley here to keep me honest because I am always going to s slide into that blending of everything and keeping everything uh, more on the phenotypic side because that's that's me. That's I, I'm a veterinarian. I hands on. I that's what I'm going to always side with is like what do I see? How is it working in the real world? And I sometimes forget that there is some stuff behind the scenes that makes that all go in the right direction. And that is the, the genotype as well as the phenotype. So I'm glad Brad's here to, to keep me honest with his tenured brain. So I have another question to hopefully, I'm just trying to like lob you guys softballs to set up some good discussion here. As we've had this conversation, there's been no specific mention of crossbreeding I feel like as we've had this conversation, we're kind of operating under the assumption that, you know, we're breeding Angus to Angus, we're breeding Holstein to Holstein. And of course, Bradley, you have extensive background and knowledge in crossbreeding, both, you know, dairy breeds to other dairy breeds, but dairy and beef breeds together as well. So I'm curious, do the types of considerations we've been talking about change at all? And, you know, especially knowing like when you're crossing dairy and beef that like the reports look different, right? We get different genetic information, all of that. So I'm just curious, do again, do those considerations change at all or are we still trying to do the same thing and 
kind of making this cow custom to the system. Joe is smirking, so I'm really kind of interested to see where this goes. Okay, well, first of all, you should never breed a Holstein to a Holstein. It should always be bred to Jersey. <laughs> all right. Yep, my bad. No, just just, the just good kidding. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, for crossbreeding, it's it's pretty much the same. You know, using improved breeds um, is always an advantage in crossbreeding. You know, I'm, I never promote using herd bulls when you're crossbreeding. Like, never. Just we we don't know what the genetics of those herd bulls are. Beef breed, it's in in the beef world, it's maybe a little bit different, but in the dairy world, um, I think genetic improvement lies in improvement of breeds. And for crossbreeding, we want to use top bulls from you know good good breeds. That being said, it sort of has the same thing when we talk about genotype by environment interaction. You know, some and I think about it even in our herds. We go into I've I've been in lots of different herds that are crossbreeding. Some bulls work better in some herds than other herds. And we see it in our herds. And there's, you know, some bulls I wish I could go back to actually from 20 years ago when we started crossbreeding because they worked so well in in our herds that I would like to use those genetics again. I probably shouldn't, but because there's much improved, probably improved genetics now, but it's all really, you you see genotype by environment interaction, even in crossbreeding. And it may be even more pronounced in crossbreeding systems uh, because you probably have more advantage in fertility, um, longevity, health, uh, and, and sort of early lifehood traits compared to production uh, when, when you're crossing. So if you think about fertility and longevity based on Joe's initial question, you know, I think crossbreeding helps promote that or, you know, hybrid vigor does much better, uh, you know, and then you get sort of a bonus on top of everything with management. So you certainly can improve uh, much faster in a crossbreeding system uh, with some of those lowly heritable traits versus genetic selection. Yeah, I mean, heterosis for me, I mean, there's there's so much data to show how, how much of an advantage you can create uh, through crossbreeding to create this hybrid vigor, this heterosis, it's, it, the, the data speaks for itself. I mean, we know it works. So when we have this kind of situation, especially when we talk beef, uh, maybe a little less so on the dairy side, depending on your goals for your operation. But, uh, if you're a commercial beef herd, I mean, it's a tool, it's a hugely underutilized tool in the toolbox, uh, that you can increase production efficiency, reproduction efficiency. Even when we're talking terminal calves only, you have some advantages and some data to show you that there are advantages even in terminal crossings to show that those calves are going to perform better purely because they are crossbred. So I, I do think it's a tool in the toolbox and you have to kind of evaluate the goals of an operation on whether or not it's a good idea to pull it out of the toolbox or not. I mean, it is a big piece of how you can create giant improvements um, quickly. So I, I, I'm a big fan and I will, as a nod to Bradley's choice of breed on the beef side, 
I will say that I don't think there's a better mama cow on the beef side than that F1 Baldy. Um, so we're crossing an Angus with a with a Hereford, and that that F1 Baldy is is the ideal mama cow in a lot of operations, um, and that's that's got pl- plenty of data behind it to show that as well. We could debate about crossbreeding for a lot, you know. That's that's my specialty. So, but I think that crossbreeding is probably more exploited and talked about in the pig world and the beef world than it certainly is in the dairy world. You know, you you, you talk to beef people and they they want to exploit crossbreeding all the time. You know, any sort of breed they'll 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 breed it, and we're trying to exploit crossbreeding. I think. I should say crossbreeding is very different in the in the dairy world because people are embracing crossbreeding right now by breeding their dairy cows to beef bulls. But trying to cross, you know, their dairy cows with another dairy breed, that's like, whoa, we can't do that. No way that, you know, we're we're gonna be in trouble. So it's it is interesting in the dairy world that people, you know, we're gonna cross the whole herd with beef and not think about it as crossbreeding. But yet, crossing a Holstein to a Jersey is oh man, that, that you're destroying the Holstein cow. I do find that pretty funny to to, <laughs> to see that right next to each other, where you could you could never violate and cross that line of having a purebred herd Jersey Holstein pick your breed. But you're more than happy to uh, reap the benefits of crossbreeding when it comes to creating beef animals. So. I agree. If you have a pure Jersey herd, why do you want to destroy that? I, I mean, that's hard. That's the only exception. There has to be <laughs> an exception exactly. to the rule, and that that is the exception. <laughs> exactly. It, Emily's just got this. Look I'm just of, over here seething. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> exactly. All right. I I think we've had plenty of debate. We've got plenty on the tape today. So, uh, I mean, we could talk for days on this and continue to go back and forth. But I, I think that's as good a place as any to. With Emily seething, it's probably time to wrap it up. (laughs) Yeah, now you guys are ready to wrap it up. (laughs) All right, go for it. All right. Well, if you have any questions, comments, or skating rebuttals about today's episode, you can email the Moose Room at themooseroom at umn.edu. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 612-624-3610. Find us on the web, extension.umn.edu on Twitter at UMN Newsroom and at UMN Farm Safety. And of course, find Bradley on Instagram at UMN WCROC Dairy. And that's a wrap. Bye. 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 Bye.